So, um, real quick side story before we go much farther into the topic for today's podcast. I am, I was in a hotel. I don't want to say what name of the city, the name of the city. I can't even talk. That's how excited I am to tell you this story. So I was in this hotel in a city. And, uh, well, okay, let me start. I should start at the beginning. I was, I was helping out um, with a safety program for a company. And we finished up our work. And I was supposed to fly home. And I got to the airport in this city named the city. I'm not going to name it. It's, it's, and uh, it was really obvious that there was a big storm and that the planes were not going to make it. So I called the airline and they said, yeah, you're right. They're not going to make it. The two's already been canceled. The last one's going to be canceled. Your flight's canceled. Um, you're going to have to spend the night there. So I said, okay. And they said, can we help you with hotels.com or whatever thing they want to help you with? And I said, no, nah, I'm fine. I'll just get on. So I got on the computer there in the airport lounge, in the lobby, not in the lounge because there wasn't a lounge. But, I, you know, I wasn't even past security. So, and uh, everything was full. And this town was having a golf tournament. And it's kind of a big golf tournament, I guess. I mean, I, don't, I guess I don't really know that much about golf tournaments, but it seems like a bit, big one. And the closest hotel they could get me on a big, you know, like a Marriott or a, or a Hilton, that kind of hotel, was uh, 100 miles away. And the flight that they had rearranged me for left the next morning at uh, like 6 a.m. So I would have to rent a car uh, and drive 100 miles to spend the night, to get up really early, to drive 100 miles, to bring the rental car back, to get gas, and to get on a plane at 6 a.m. So I thought, well, that's not going to work. So I start looking around, and I think, okay, I'll go to one of those, the one of those like Travelocity or Orbitz or one of those things. So I go to Orbitz. And I find a hotel, and it's a, it's kind of, it's a it's a name you would know, and uh, and they have a room. So I so I I contact them, and they said, yeah, we have a room. Just come on down. There's only a couple of rooms left. So uh, so I get in there, and they say, we'll send the van to pick you up. It's already coming to pick somebody else up. So the van comes, and it's got the name of the hotel on the side of it. Really nice van, like brand new Mercedes Sprinter. Super nice guy driving it. I think I'm gonna be fine. This is gonna be great, right? So they they pull me to the hotel, which is pretty close to the airport in this town, in the town, and uh, check in. And I'm on the bottom floor by the back door on a long hallway just filled with rooms. So and uh, and the hotel is not as nice as the van was. The lady was pretty nice to check me in, but it wasn't it wasn't terribly nice. So uh, I check into the hotel, and the people I'm working with call me, and they say, oh, did you get home? How are you doing? And I said, nah, all the flights are canceled, and I can't get home. And they said, are you going to stay in the town? And I said, yeah. And they said, where are you staying? And I said the name of this hotel, and they said, oh, you can't stay there. You cannot stay there. And I said, well, it's all that's open. There's nothing open. And the person said, oh, if I were there, you could stay at my house, but, oh, my God, do not stay there. And I said, well, I'm already there. And they said, okay. So do not leave your room. Whatever you do, do not leave your room. So I'm thinking, wow, what have I done, right? Because it doesn't look bad, brand new Sprinter, but, you know, everything's fine. So I'm watched, I get in the room, and I think, well, I, you know, i got to get up really early and catch a flight anyway, so I'll be fine. So I stay in the room. Um, 
And eventually I watched TV, which is, you know, that's kind of uh, sort of a fun thing. I don't think anything was on, but that's almost always true. And then I go to bed pretty early because I got to get up pretty early because I got to get to the airport and catch this plane. So I'm sleeping away and about, I don't know, 1230, I hear bang, bang, bang. And it's really clear those were gunshots. And then lots of screaming, just lots of cursing and screaming and yelling and screaming and yelling and more bang, bang. And I think, huh, hmm, I haven't really drilled for this. I I don't have a plan for what happens if there's a shooting at the back door and my room is right next to it. But it's really obvious that it's in the hallway. It's really obvious that it happened at that back door because I can hear it kind of swinging back and forth and opening up and I can hear screaming both inside the hotel and outside the hotel. And I think, what should I do? So I think, should I get out of bed and lay on the floor? And I think, mm." actually, I think getting shot would probably be safer than laying on the floor because it's kind of a, it's a, it's not such a nice place to be. And then I think, should I crouch by the air conditioner? Because that's that maybe that would provide appropriate cover or shielding, but I don't think so. Then I think, well, can I just lay here as skinny as I can be on the bed? And you know, that's not that good of a plan for me. So I think I don't know what to do. And then, then the excitement. You think the gunshots and the argument and the yelling. You would think that would be the excitement, right? I mean, that's kind of the exciting part of it. But in fact, that wasn't exciting at all compared to what happened next, which was a giant. I don't even know, garbage truck full of policemen screaming the word, city police, SWAT team, SWAT team, get on the ground, get on the ground, do it now, do it now, screaming and flashbangs and uh, it's just amazing uh, police officers using their police officer voice telling everyone to do stuff and then say, do it now, do it now. And then they they kept identifying themselves as SWAT team, SWAT team, SWAT team. This is all you guys while I'm in this hotel at like one o'clock in the morning that the person I talked to earlier said, do not leave your room. It's not a good place. Don't go outside. And now everything's kind of coming to me. And all of this is happening right next to my room. Needless to say, I couldn't be more awake. I, I can't even, I, yeah, I don't even know how you could be more awake. I, I could not have been adrenaline was pumping I was planning on, th- I didn't even know what to do. It was crazy. And after about an hour and 45 minutes, starting from the beginning of the gunshots to where the screaming and the police uh, sort of noises stopped, that hour and 45 minutes was just sheer adrenaline, just, uh, just absolute adrenaline. And then it got quiet again. And I thought, well, I wonder what I should do. And I thought, well, I think you should go back and sit in the airport because at least in the airport, um, uh, you won't die in a hotel bed so that they'll tell some story of you dying in a hotel bed. So I waited what I thought was a really long time, and it probably was a long time, until everything cleared down. And then I walked very carefully. I put my clothing on. And I walked really carefully, and I looked out the peephole in the door, and I couldn't see anything. Nothing. 
nothing. So then I cracked the door open just a tiny little bit and looked through the crack, and I didn't see anything. So then I opened a little wider, and I didn't see anything. And finally, I stuck my head out, and the coast was clear. Everything that had happened was over. It was over. It was finished. And so I grabbed my suitcase, and I drug it down that hallway as fast as I could, heading towards the front desk. And I pull in from that long hallway full of rooms. I walk into the main lobby, and I go to the desk, and I tell the lady who, who is awake and standing at the counter, I said, I need to go back to the airport right now. And she says, the van doesn't run 24 hours a day. And I said, it needs to run right now. And she said, why? And I said, because I was just in the room next to where that shooting was. I want to go to the airport. And she said, okay. And she made a phone call. And then she looked at me and she said, did you hear all that? And I said, yeah, um, it's, uh, it'd be relatively hard to miss all that. And she said, I'm sure sorry, sir. That doesn't normally happen here. And I said, wow, yeah, that's probably a good thing to not normally happen. She said, it was one of our regulars. He's a really good guy. He's just a terrible drunk. And then the van pulled up, and I got in, and I went to the airport. Todd Conn from Pre-Accident Podcast. How are you today? Well, that's the uh, hotel murder story. If you catch me aside, I will tell you the name of the city in which it happened. I'm probably, I probably should have said the name of the hotel because uh, they probably shouldn't get away with that, <laughs> really. Um, it's, uh, it's, uh, I'm not going to say it. I don't want to get in trouble because I'm always in kind of a little bit of trouble, but I don't want to get in trouble there. So how are you doing, everybody? Good. It is, near as I can tell, if I uh, do this correctly, near the 1st of September. So uh, the first part of September. It might even be the first. I don't know. It's, uh, it's really close to the first part of September. And the summer is officially over. School started. Everything's back to, to jams, at least here in the part of the world where I live and, and create the podcast from. Today's topic is, uh, is not a funny one. Uh, even though I started with the, the, the almost getting shot story in a hotel, uh, it, it's, it's, I don't know how else to have this. Con- it's, this has been a hard summer because uh, there's just a lot going on. And for what we do, when we think about providing safety and reliability and security and resilience, all the things that we talk about, one of the things that I think is really worth talking about is, uh, is a phenomenon that's happened 38 times at least as of today's recording of this podcast, 38 times this summer. And that has been when a child has been left in the back of a car. And um, horribly and horrifically, the car gets really hot and the child does not make it. Or in some cases, although this isn't part of the 38 count, uh, a passerby will identify it and intervene pretty aggressively and uh, break into the car, call the police, rescue the child. This idea of leaving children in a hot car, that's what I want to talk about. Because I'm relatively convinced, and I talk about this a lot all over the world, but how we see a problem 
directly controls how we solve the problem. So if you went to grad school or if you're going to go to grad school, and by the way, I give grad school the highest mark I can give because it's a really fun way to kill time. If you go to grad school, you learn really quickly when you have to write your first big book report, your first big paper, that grad school is won and lost in the formulation of the research question. Really all science, hard science, physical science, social science, all sciences are won and lost in the creation of the research question. The RQ, that's what they call it in the business. The research question, the research question colors what you'll learn. And in fact, this children in hot car problem is, I think, horrifically still existing in this world because of the way we see this problem. In almost every case, when a child is left in the car, we punish the parent that left the child. Even if we don't throw them in jail, we publicly humiliate them, we stand in judgment of them, we oftentimes give them civil charges, we punish them for killing their own child. And for the most part, it's incredibly rare, but for the most part, almost all of these events are accidents. Now, there are some outliers here, and if we talk about extreme cases, then we're going to come up with an extreme system. But I would suggest the parents who do kill their children by leaving them in cars and killing them by heat or running the car into the water or whatever sort of child aside they do, um, those are not the ones we're talking about today. We're going to talk about the fact that when a child is left in a car, that is not an indicator of a bad parent. That's an indicator of a human parent. And a human parent has the ability, believe it or not, if the context and conditions are just so, to absolutely leave their child in a car. You could leave anything in the back of a car. You could leave five gallons of ice cream on a hot day in the back of a car. I mean, the consequence of that is much less. But it's relatively easy to not notice something. Even though we say, we're going to pay attention, we're going to notice this, we're going to identify this problem, we are going to remember to pick up our child. We don't do it. And it really started with the case that happened last month in the Bronx with a father, 31 years old, who was a psychiatric nurse in a psychiatric hospital. So we already know he works in a caring profession. And for goodness sakes, he's a psychiatric nurse. Um, he's pretty much qualifying as a good person. I mean, that's a tough job. He's got three children, a, a toddler and two twin babies. He takes the toddler to the daycare center, but on his way from the daycare center to work, his plan was to stop and drop the twin babies, the one-year-olds, at their, their daycare center that's specifically for them. But something happens between letting off the toddler and going to work. And what happened is he, he fell into probably pressure to perform at work, non-routine requirement of the task that day, and routine driving, the same driving he does every time he drops his toddler off and goes to work. 
So it's interesting for this case in the Bronx in that he didn't normally take the one-year-olds to their daycare center. That was an off-normal occurrence. But he did normally take the toddler to her preschool. So he did his normal routine, and his normal routine did not include dropping off his one-year-old babies. He parked at the office, he went in to do his work, and came out and discovered the horrifying news that his children were dead. I would suggest there's no worse punishment I can think of. His children are dead. And the guilt he must feel, the devastating, horrific guilt he must feel, is tremendous. We won't make this better by asking parents to not forget their children. We can ask them a million different ways. We can get billboards and we can have signs. We can have radio ads. We can do lots and lots of stuff. We can ask parents to be better parents. The problem is, is that doesn't actually create a system where that failure can't happen. And I'm about to the point in this story and about to the point this summer where I don't think this should ever happen again. I think we need to build a system where it's really, really hard to leave your children in the car. But it expects it to happen. The system expects the failure to take place. Because expecting it not to happen is getting us nothing. If we as a society say we expect better parents to not ever make this mistake, then our expectation is that we expect this to never happen. But I actually think it should be exactly the opposite. We should expect every parent who puts a child in the back seat in a car seat and takes them someplace, we should expect there's a 100% chance they're going to forget that child in the car. 100%. And so there's a fail-proof system that can identify the presence of a young, living, breathing thing in the back of a vehicle, and if the car starts to get hot, then that triggers some system that either turns the ventilation on, rolls the windows down, honks the horn, texts the driver, calls the police, makes the lights flash, or all of those things. But we'll only get there by understanding that this accident is inevitable. This accident's not preventable, it's inevitable. And by understanding that it's inevitable, we then build systems to manage the consequence of the inevitability. So there's a hotel in downtown Houston on Dallas Street. It's, a, it's an interesting hotel, and I've stayed there a bunch of times. And uh, they just remodeled it just really recently. They changed the name of it and kind of made it fancy, sort of hipster hotel. And in the rooms... They uh, turned the bathtubs into walk-in showers, which was kind of nice. And they kind of got new beds and new linens, and they painted everything and put in new carpeting. The other thing they did was replace all the light switches with motion detection light switches. Now, I totally get that those are environmentally much better because if nobody's in the room moving around, it shuts the lights off. It's a great plan, especially for a big hotel, because I bet their light bill is expensive. But this hotel, I happened to stay there really early in the remodel process. In fact, I was the first person to stay in this newly remodeled room. 
and it was the first floor they'd remodeled. So they were really into this. And when I opened the door to the room, the action of opening the door and stepping in turned the lights on in the hotel room. And I thought, well, that's kind of cool. I mean, it knows I'm here. The lights turned on. It's welcoming. And so I do all the normal stuff you do in a hotel, right? I mean, I didn't wait for a shooting to happen because I don't really ever expect that. But pretty soon I decided it's time to go to bed. I have to get up early and be a really stunning, interesting person tomorrow. So I went over and shut the lights off, and I got into bed. And I laid there, and I laid there, and I thought, you know, this position's not very comfortable. I think I'll roll over. And when I rolled over, the lights turned on in the hotel room. So I thought, well, that's weird. I must not have got them shut off correctly. So I went up and shut them off again. This time I looked carefully and I hit a button and it said off and I hit it and the lights went off and I got into bed and I laid there and I laid there and I thought, this position is not very comfortable. And I rolled over and the lights came on in the hotel. Now that's the second time. So I get up and look, shut it off again and I get into bed and I think this can't be. And this time I don't wait. I just roll over and the lights came on in the hotel. And I thought, oh, no, what should I do? So I shut them off one more time and I laid in bed and I tried my hardest not to move. And eventually I fell asleep. And I don't know how long I slept. I hope it's a long time, but it probably wasn't. But at some point in the middle of the night, I rolled over and the lights were on. And I thought, I don't know what to do because I don't want to change rooms. I should call down and complain, but I don't know what they're going to do. It means I'm going to have to get up, get dressed, get everything ready. So I basically put the pillow over my head and went to sleep. Now, here's my story. If they can design a light switch that they could put into an old double tree in downtown Houston, and I promise you, that light switch didn't cost any money because they didn't put a lot of money in this remodel. So if they can design a light switch for a dollar that senses when a big guy turns over in a bed 50 feet away in a motel room, they can absolutely design a sensor for a car that knows a baby or a pet or grandma or somebody is in that car sleeping and interlock it somehow with the temperature so that, in fact, it becomes a robust and reliable engineering control that really does this one thing. It buys time. It cools the car down. It notifies the driver. It allows us to understand that this failure takes place. I really, really want to see this change happen. And I'm going to do my best to talk about this every chance I get. Because my guess is continuing to ask parents to be more careful means we'll have another 38 kids die next summer. And I don't think any kid should die for any reason but I really don't think kids should die because they've been left in a hot car. But I refuse to blame the person. So, you know, I talk about it a bunch, but moving from who failed to what failed really does change the question. And this is an example that I think, above all the other ones I've ever given you, and I've given you a bunch, this is an example of shifting that focus from who failed to what failed. Because the who part of this, near as I can tell you guys, the who part of this is going to feel the pain of this mistake for the rest of their lives. 
we can't hurt them more than they feel hurt now. What we can do is we can look at this and say, this isn't the function of a bad parent. This is the function of a busy parent, of a distracted parent, of a parent under stress, of a parent performing many tasks simultaneously, uh, of a parent who's got many, 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 many obligations that have all aligned in such a way that prioritization, be what it is, is made for them by the human condition. That's what we want to look at. And that's not a function of bad people. That's a function of bad research question formulation. We have to know that this accident is inevitable. By knowing this accident is inevitable, it allows us the intellectual space to create solutions for this based upon the idea that we know it will happen. Not to justify it by saying a good parent would never do this. That's really important. Does that make sense? I hope so. Because that's a major part of the podcast for today. So there you got it. That's my two cents. I've been wanting to give this podcast a a little fly pretty much all summer long. And it just got more and more compelling as more and more events happen. The one where the, I, I think it was in either Florida or Alabama, where they actually identified the child before the child was injured and the police officer busted out the window and saved the kid and he had his body camera on and they showed the body camera interview of him talking to the mother and the grandmother. And she said, I, I never wanted to be this parent. She said, I watched this on TV and I think, how could those parents do that? And then she says to the policeman, I'm one of those parents. It happened to me. I made a mistake, a horrible, horrible mistake, and I'm so sorry. And uh, they load the baby into the ambulance, and the mother and the policeman are going with it, and they have a big discussion. I think that's the story we need to tell. That's, that's a much more compelling story to tell, really, at a bunch of levels. That's, that's how we get to and change the world, is by actually making the formulation of the question more accurate and realistic. Events will happen. They will happen. It's our job to have the capacity in the system so that we can manage the consequence of that event away. And that's exactly, precisely, ideally, where we want to go with this. And I challenge you in the automotive industry, I challenge you, I challenge you in the engineering field, I challenge you if you're a safety professional or a reliability professional, I challenge you to help me come up with a solution to this problem. But I think more importantly, what we can do, instead of coming up with a solution, I think there's probably better people that can solve it than me. I'm pretty convinced of that, right? What we can really do is help change the question. Let's change the discussion around this so that the discussion we have is a discussion of the inevitability of this failure, not the, the moral weakness of the parent to which this failure happens. Just my two cents. I mean, it might as well start September on a serious note. You know, it's an important thing, and I want you to think about it. So that's the podcast for today. Have as much fun as you possibly can. Learn something new every single day. And for goodness sakes, you guys, never sleep in the hotel room by the back door if there's going to be a shooting and the SWAT team's going to come. 
I think you'd be better somewhere in the middle of the hotel. But until then, be safe. <laughs>